Wow. Isn't Jesus amazing? Isn't Jesus amazing? <laughs> Come on. Oh, we love your presence, Lord. We love your presence. Father, we thank you for the gospel this morning, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Lord, I know it's been prayed many times this morning already, but I just, even from my own heart, Lord, I just thank you for a fresh hunger to captivate us this morning, Lord, a fresh hunger for your word, fresh hunger for your presence, for the truth of the gospel this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that as the gospel is ministered, Lord, as we read your word, let it be like the first time that it hits our hearts, Lord. I ask you for fresh revelation today, Lord, fresh revelation. We love you and we honor you. And would you fill my heart, fill my mouth with your words this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everyone okay? I'm excited. I um, feel like I'm in a tension of I could just lie on my face and weep the rest of the day. But I'm also really excited to preach the gospel. Um, I feel like week by week, every time I'm reading the scriptures and just meditating on the simple but pure and potent and powerful gospel, um, I'm, I'm rocked over and over again. And week by week, my prayer, um, my prayer before the Lord has just been, I, I never want to get used to hearing the language of the gospel. I never want to get used to the message that it's something that I'm in a negative sense familiar with. But my prayer is, Lord, every time that I read it, let me treat it as what it is, which is your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, ready to just cut straight to my heart. Not cut my heart, but cut to my heart. In other words, his word cuts through all the junk, all the mess, all the noise of life so that it can reach the deepest part of who we are. And I want that every single day. And I believe that the gospel is powerful enough and that the, the word of the Lord and who he is is powerful enough to do that in us every single day. So first and foremost, I want to encourage us as a church and as a family to never settle for complacency. Never settle for, I've heard this before, when's the next teaching, when's the next revelation, when's the next prophetic word over my life. But to be really intentional and really careful that every single day, not just sometimes, not just on a Sunday or on Wednesday at Sanctuary, those are beautiful times just to get stirred up, fired up with the people of God. But every day to be intentional to say, Jesus, let the gospel rock my life again and again and again. I really believe that as a church, um, both in our individual lives, but also corporately and, and, and the church globally is, is going to look so different if every day, every single one of us said, Lord, conquer my life with the gospel again and again and again. Amen. So as Con mentioned, we have um, started a bit of a series on the book of Romans and oh my goodness, Romans is wild, wild, wild. Um, it is so rich, so dense. It's so easy to read one line and just camp there and pull out so much from it. But what I'm learning more and more uh, reading this letter is that this is really in, in so many ways like Paul's statement of faith. Like, hey, this is the gospel in excruciating detail. This is what we believe. This is what we're about. Here it is. 
And um, the, the reason that that's important to know is because you can, you know, camp in these specific sections in Romans, but I really believe that it needs to be read and treated holistically, meaning that every single chapter, every single verse is is deeply connected and dependent on one another, and that he's building, using each, each chapter, each verse as building blocks to give us this incredible structure that is the gospel of grace. Does that make sense? So you'll find like, I'm seeing more and more with Romans, often when you read something and it doesn't quite make sense, keep on reading and you'll find that it will be explained later on. Like he's building constantly. Sometimes he'll mention something and later on he'll go more into more detail about that particular theme. So really, once you see the whole picture, it's just this incredible detailed description of what the gospel is, what it means for our lives, and what it's going to produce in our lives as believers. Amen? So as with all scripture, the best way to read Romans is in context. Um, I always remember Rob Rufus, a, a dear friend of the house, would always say, like, you need to know the context or else the text will con you. You can read it and totally miss what he's saying, but if you read it in context, see the holistic message that is trying to be communicated, um, it really just unlocks for you and becomes so powerful. Um, so just for a little bit of context about uh, the first couple of chapters and just the letter as a whole. So obviously, it is a letter written to the church in Rome. Hope you knew that. <laughs> That's why it's called Romans. And um, the, the context for the church there was predominantly a, a Gentile church, meaning that the believers were not previously Jews, but there were a lot of Jewish believers um, within the church as well. And uh, what was happening is a little bit of tension in this community was, um, was beginning to form because a lot of the Jewish believers were still um, observing and adhering to works of the law in an attempt to keep themselves righteous, to, to keep themselves holy, even though they'd received the gospel of grace. So when they viewed Gentile believers living completely free from works of the law, there was like almost offense of like, hey, what are you doing? You know, so almost like I want to say a differing views of the gospel or incomplete views of the gospel were, were clashing a little bit in this community. So Paul um, took it upon himself. He, he'd never been to Rome at the time of writing this letter. He'd not been with this church. But he thought, let me send a letter. Let me send a, a thorough description of the gospel to smash and squash any kind of tension, any kind of um, disunity in this church so that the truth of the gospel can be established and that true peace, true unity can be established in the church. And that comes only through the pure gospel and through the Holy Spirit. So the reason why it's important to know that um, is because it really makes you understand a lot of the things that he's saying. You can actually see throughout the different chapters that Paul is in some sections addressing Jewish believers, in other times Gentile believers, and then in other times the church holistically, everybody together. Does that make sense so far? I just want to lay a bit of a foundation before we dive in. Um, I also want to say the reason why it was so important for Paul to send this letter to, to have them all in unity and um, agreement on the gospel is because you'll read uh, later on in chapter 15, Paul's intent when he came to Rome was to essentially set up like a home base. And it was his desire that from there he would be sent to the nation of Spain, which this is pretty wild. In their minds, in, in this context that it was written, Spain was like literally the ends of the earth to these guys. Like he was like, we're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, and we, what we know is that that's Spain. And uh, you'll see in chapter 15, he says that his desire is that the church in Rome would actually partner with him to, to help send him and ultimately send the gospel to Spain. 
So it's really important that they're all in full agreement of what the gospel is about, because otherwise, if we're not, then there might have been hesitancy in the church to, oh, well, I'm not sure if I want to send you to this place because I'm not sure if I agree with what you're preaching. So Paul's heart is, let's get settled on what the gospel is. Let's make sure that it's clear, because this message changes lives. This message needs to go as far as Spain and to the ends of the earth. Okay? Does that make sense? So in the beginning of Romans, what Paul actually starts out explaining, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of it right now, but if you are making notes, this will be really good for you to go and read and just really thoroughly study all of it. It's really beautiful. But Paul actually begins the book of Romans by explaining unrighteousness. And uh, he does this in three parts. Um, In chapter 1, from verse 18, right to the end of the chapter, so verse 32, um, Paul speaks into the context of the unrighteousness of the, of the Gentiles, okay? Um, this is, he's talking about the people who have not yet been saved. Um, from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 8, he, is, he specifically addresses the unrighteousness of Jewish people, even under the context of the law. And then thirdly, from uh, chapter 3, verse 9 onwards, he brings it all together and talks about the unrighteousness of all people. So, he does this for two reasons. Some of you are like, why would he talk about that? Why am I talking about that? Um, Why are we talking about unrighteousness? Let me make this really, really clear. What Paul is communicating in explaining the, the unrighteousness of both Gentiles, Jews, and the world holistically is he is communicating that every single one of us, regardless of your background, regardless of your lineage, the family that you come from, every single one of us have a profoundly desperate need for a savior. We cannot do this life or any kind of life without the person of Jesus. So he is breaking it down for over three chapters of like saying, hey, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile, no matter where you come from, there is unrighteousness and sin in the world and we need Jesus. We need a savior. We desperately need a savior. So that's first and foremost what he's communicating. The second thing, which is specifically why, like I mentioned, there was tension between the Jewish and Gentile believers um, in this church. So another thing is that that he was refuting by making these statements in the first few chapters um, is that there was a common Jewish teaching in the days of Paul, uh, which I think a lot of it is actually even still around today, but um, a lot of Jews believed that they were automatically in good standing with God because of their covenant relationship with him. So a a teaching that was going around the Jewish people was essentially that um, you didn't need to perfectly obey the law. You just had to have the intention to obey, which is pretty messed up, right? So this was a belief that was circulating not just in the church, but but around um, the nation of Israel as well. So Paul's refuting that. He's like saying, hey, actually, no. Every single one of us are unrighteous before the Father. We need Jesus and to receive righteousness by faith that the law is not going to save you from that. Nobody is in perfect standing with the Lord until they have received Jesus, right? Are you guys with me? So although a lot of the language in the first few chapters where he's, he's addressing unrighteousness can be quite strong and it's a little bit intense, it really is so important that we have that as a little bit of a foundation as, and as framework because if we don't fully understand and comprehend our need for a savior, when we read the gospel and we read about what Jesus did on the cross, it might not hit our hearts as hard as what it's supposed to. Because if we kind of go like, well... I wasn't that bad. Like, there were way worse people out there, you know, that heard some things going on and whatever. Um, 
it has to hit our hearts that again, no matter where you're from, who you are, what you've done, every single one of us have a desperate need for the person of Jesus. And that's really important for what we're about to read. So you can turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Everyone okay? So we really need that as uh, like context for what we're about to read because what we're about to see Paul say, um, I'll give you the verse now, is, is so scandalous. It's so wild. It's supernatural. It is wild um, and, and actually quite offensive to, to a lot of people. And if we don't understand the context of speaking into that we desperately need a savior, then what he's about to say here is not going to hit our hearts the way that it really should. And again, I'm going to say it every day, like even, even now, if you could take a moment in your own heart to just ask Jesus, like, Lord, let what you've done, let the truth of the gospel hit my heart in the deepest possible way. Lord, we are hungry for you. And I, I pray, Lord, that that your scripture would cut to our hearts this morning, Lord. Lord, bring fresh revelation. We ask this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for your word, Lord. Okay, let's go. I'm going to read just a little bit, just so that we have some context. Um, but the verse that we're going to really uh, just camp in for a little bit is verse 24 of chapter 3. But I'm going to go from verse 21. So it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means brought from the unseen and made tangible, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see how that's summarizing how we address two different people and he brings it all together. It's like there is no distinction in God's eyes. All have sinned, all have fallen short. But listen to this. This needs to hit our hearts profoundly. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. Say justified. Say by his grace. Say as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, by his blood to be received by, to be received by faith. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Something that I felt a lot of conviction on Years ago, when I first started um, preaching, was that I, I felt a conviction to never assume that people understand the words that we, that, that we say or, or the different themes when we're explaining the gospel. What I mean by that is um, there's incredible words in the gospel that carry a lot of meaning, but they aren't used very commonly in, in um, like our modern day world. So words like justification, words like being reconciled, words like righteousness, we can use them, but often for the hearer, if you don't really know what... Um, they're talking about, then it's difficult for your heart to actually make a landing strip for the gospel to land. Does that make sense? So I really, this is a powerful word. To be justified in the eyes of God is profound. And I want to explain that just a little bit this morning so that we can really understand the way that the Father sees us and how that should dictate the way we live everyday life. 
A couple of years ago, maybe as early as when I first joined this church, I remember something that Pastor Grant used to say about the word justified, which like really just made things so simple for me and was like, that's it, this is profound. If you can remember this, to be justified is God looks at you just as if you've never sinned. Justified, just as if you've never sinned. This is wild, 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 wild. That means regardless of the thought that you have right now, the hectic week that you had, the mistakes that you've made, your shortcomings, your sins, whatever it is, the way that the Father sees you because of the sacrifice of Jesus, says whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Because of the finished work of the cross, the way that the Father sees us at all times, forever, is just as if you've never sinned. Are you hearing this? This is good news. Just as if you've never sinned. That's how the Father sees you. Pure, holy, blameless, and above reproach. As in Colossians 1. If I could make another illustration. Um, we always, always go back to the garden. I feel like the garden is something that always comes up in this church. But um, when you look at Adam and Eve, they had no history. They had no past whatsoever. They were literally created in the glory and in the presence of God and knew nothing other than His presence and His glory. They had no concept of right or wrong. They only knew His righteousness. They, they had no other voice or any other lie, anything speaking into their lives. They only had the voice of the Father speaking to them. There was no sin in them because sin wasn't yet in the world. If you don't believe me about that, if you were to flick over to Romans 5, uh, chapter, uh, uh, Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So it came through Adam, but it wasn't present right in the beginning. Does that make sense? Like there wasn't sin there. So when it talks about the Lord w walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, there was no point in their hearts or in their lives that they shied away from his presence because there was nothing in them to be afraid of him until the fall. So they had no past, no history, no context for right and wrong, just his righteousness. So I want to say and put it to us this morning that this is like a picture for the new covenant sort of context that the way that God saw Adam and Eve, obviously before the fall, was just as if they'd never sinned, because they had never sinned. And I want to say this, they had no consciousness of sin whatsoever. They only had consciousness and awareness of the righteousness of God. Are you with me? This is really important because the reason why going back to the garden is important when we... Um, when we want to learn about the purpose of why we are alive, the purpose of what God had for mankind, is often the first time we see something in the scripture is what dictates um, the rest of it. Like his plan and his purpose right from the, the beginning hasn't changed. So today I want to say this to us. When we are born again, when you give your life to Jesus and you are born again, you have no past. You have no history. <laughs> You only have his presence. And life only truly begins once you have given your life to Jesus. How many scriptures? We were once dead. Dead. Not just like moving through life. We were dead, but now we're alive. He has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
and he has seated us in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. I want to say to you today that because if you are born again, the only history and past that you have is the righteousness of God. Even if you've made mistakes. The only history that you have is His presence and His glory. And if we could really let that hit our hearts this morning, I promise you this will change the way that you live every day. It will change the way that you relate to God, the way that you receive from Him. Because if you understand, regardless of what you did five minutes ago, when He looks at you, He sees you as just as if you've never sinned. This is the blessing of the gospel. Oh, I feel like we could just stay there and weep the rest of the day. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word is like a, a substitution. It was a substitutionary death. He died in our place, just so that we're clear on that. <clears throat> To be received by faith. I want to ask a question and I actually want you to answer me. Does it say to be earned or to be received? Does it say by works or by faith? It says to be received by faith. There is absolutely nothing that you can do to earn justification, to earn righteousness, to earn the glory and the presence of the Lord. Listen to the language. Justified by His grace as a what? As a gift. You don't earn a gift. That would be pretty messed up if we had to earn gifts, right? He's a good and perfect Father. This is the blessing of the gospel. Listen, if, you, if, I, if I put it a sentence like this, this is the blessing of the gospel, to be declared righteous by the one true living God. Simply because, simply because for no other reason other than we have put our faith in Him and His righteousness. Justified, holy, blameless, pure. The more that I've just been studying this, which you're going to get to now, just realizing like how much language in scripture actually talks about the blessing of the gospel. Um, and for many different reasons, many different ways, I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we have a very different definition or understanding of what it even means to be blessed. What it means, how we measure blessing in our lives, how we're able to perceive whether or not we're blessed. Um, and I really want to make a case today that the greatest blessing that we can and ever will receive is to be declared righteous before the Father. So if you want to jump over literally to the next chapter, Romans chapter 4 from verse 1. This is so beautiful. <clears throat> this is, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And this is quoting from Genesis 15. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That makes sense, right? You don't get a gift for working. You get what's rightfully yours for working. He's talking about uh, works of the law. And then he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Listen to this. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, say blessing, also speaks of the blessing to the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is from Psalm 32. It says, blessed are those, say blessed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed, say blessed, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessing of the gospel. Ah, thank you, Jesus. If you want to flip over with me to Galatians chapter 3, I know we're doing a study in Romans, but there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of similarities in Galatians and things that just really help um, to confirm, to strengthen, to help better understand a lot of the things that we just read and what we're going to continue to unpack in Romans. Um, and again, just for some context, we'll read a little bit just to give us some context, but the church in Galatia had similar kind of issues in that they were mixing legalism and works of the law with grace. And Paul comes in really, really strong against this. He, uh, he, he says that to mix legalism with grace, to mix anything, to add to it or to take it away, means that it is no gospel at all. There is only one gospel and everything that is contrary to it. He literally says, whoever preaches that, let them be accursed. He really comes strong against legalism and he's preaching grace intensely. So listen to this. His language is very strong. From chapter 3, verse 1, I want to focus on verses 7 to 9, but I just want to give us some context so we can see where it's covering from. Are you ready? So from verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, powerful scripture, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? This is powerful. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as, this is literally what we just read um, in uh, Romans 4, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, this is so wild, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let me ask you this. When you hear that you are blessed, and blessed along with Abraham in particular, what is the picture that comes into your head when you hear that? How do we measure blessing in our life? 
See, the prosperity gospel will tell you that the wealth of Abraham is the blessing that is due to you and that we have inheritance on. And I don't know about anybody here, but I've certainly never received any bank deposits from an Abraham before. So I'm not sharing in his wealth just yet. So what is, he, what is Paul saying here? That those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this is why the scripture says that preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Showing that the Gentiles would be saved, justified. There's that word again, would be justified by faith. Say to Abraham, in you shall all the nations, all the nations be blessed. What is he talking about? He's saying that this is the first man that was declared righteous by faith. And that all the earth would follow in those same footsteps. That the faith of Abraham would become the faith of new covenant believers. And, it, and this is the blessing that he gave him. He believed God and God said, you're righteous. So when we think about being blessed and the blessing in our lives, do we think about our jobs? Uh, do we think about our relationships? Do we think about our successes? Do we think about how well things are going? Before I even say that, I just want to, I really want to make clear that in everything that I'm saying, I'm not at all saying that God doesn't want to lavish good jobs and health and family and successes on us. He's a good father, and I really do believe he wants to bless us in that sense. But when we talk about the blessing of the gospel, when we talk about blessing as, as um detailed and described in scripture, we have to make sure that we have a biblical view of what that means. Because if we don't, we will begin to measure whether or not we are blessed, how well we're doing in our relationship with God by how things are going in our life. So if my job is going well, ah, oh, blessed buddy, God is just rocking my life right now, business is great, everything is splendid. What happens when business isn't going well? So many people will question their standing with God when they face, you know, life situations like that. And business is just one aspect. It could honestly be absolutely anything. But the point is, if we allow external things to dictate how we respond to the gospel, then that's a good indication that we're not thinking about blessing as being righteous before God. And that rather if I could say it this way, the influence and culture of this world has dictated and spoken to us what the measure of blessing actually looks like, which is success. Everything's going well, relationships thriving, etc., etc., etc. And again, I, I absolutely believe that God wants us to have those things, but never at the expense of the health of your heart. And I don't believe that he will use things like that just to make you happy, because he's way, way, way more deep way more in love with you than that. He wants to bless you, but he is far, far more concerned about the health and the reality of your heart. Why? Because everything else that you have in this world, you will leave behind one day. The only thing we will take with us is our hearts before Jesus. 
And right now, in this, on this side of eternity, not just later, we get to live in the blessing of the gospel, which means that every day I get to encounter God and I know that the way he looks at me every moment of every day is just as if I've never sinned. That he looks at me and he says, my son or my daughter, my beloved in whom I'm well pleased, and I haven't done anything. Just by putting our faith in God. Faith is this. It's a total trust, reliance, and dependency on who He is, what He's done, and what He says. And nothing in my own ability, in my own gifting, our own strengths, whatever it is. Everything that I am is placed into the person of Jesus. And when we do that, the moment that we get saved, He says, you're righteous. Abraham was a very, very wealthy man. But I really believe that his greatest blessing was God breaking into his life. Do you know that he was a pagan, idol-worshipping man from Iraq? Not looking for God. God breaks into his life, says, hey, Abraham, I'm the one true living God. And Abraham goes, I believe you. And he says, you're righteous. That's it. That's it. He simply put his faith in the one true living God and everything about his life changed. Where the Lord said to him, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because they will get to share the inheritance of the faith that you've just put in me. Is everyone okay? I'm nearly done. A quick one. I'll just expand on this real quick, literally by reading scripture. I really wanted to read a lot of scripture today because we can listen to an endless amount of teachings. Um, I love that we have access to things like YouTube and podcasts. I think it's great. Um, but we've got to be careful when, when we realize that as the access to teaching and courses and all these things have ramped up, maturity in the church has decreased. So we've got to make sure that our ears aren't just tickled by good teachers, but that our faith is actually established in the Word of God. Like, this is what He says. This needs to hit my heart. Teaching is valuable. We need teachers. That's biblical. Absolutely. But make sure that your faith is not in the words of a man or a woman, but that it's in the gospel. It's in the Bible. It's in the words of God Himself. Amen? So we just continue in Galatians 3 as we're studying the book of Romans. <laughs> it all ties in, right? Um, let's carry on from verse 10. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, uh, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, and here it is again, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. You don't need faith for that, right? Here's a rule I follow it, no faith involved. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen to the wisdom of God in this scripture. This is profound. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You're like, what? For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He became sin who knew no sin. He became sin and hung sin on a cross. And he cursed sin on the cross forever. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, here it is, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Faith. Faith. This is the blessing of the gospel. The faith, or, or let me say it this way, the, the blessing that was Abraham's, the blessing of Abraham that has come to us through Christ Jesus is the blessing of being declared righteous before the Father simply by putting our faith in Him. Putting our faith in the Lord is what will produce good works in our lives. It's, it's, it's the complete opposite way around. The law says do all of these things so that you can earn right standing, but you'll never get it anyway, so good luck trying. But faith says just by simply putting my faith in the Father, He declares me righteous. And when you believe and have received the righteousness of God, that changes the way that you live. How differently, and I'm asking you to ponder on this, how differently do you think you would live when you wake up tomorrow morning, even when you leave here today, if you truly believe that the way that the Father sees you is righteous and holy and blameless? How will that change your time pursuing His presence, studying His Word? Because subconsciously, because again, the way that the culture and the world around us is shaped is that I need to do in order to earn. And that kind of thinking often gets in the way of our relationship with Jesus. We allow the external to affect, to affect um, the, the response that we have towards the gospel, the response that we give to Jesus. But if we could really grasp and understand, just as everything we've read, that He has done everything that could possibly need to be done by becoming a curse for us. The rest of that scripture, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. So when he says you're righteous, he's not just saying you're righteous. He's saying my righteousness has been imparted to you. So because we are covered in the blood of Jesus, because our very spirits have been made one with the spirit of God, it's like he sees us with a red lens. He sees us through the blood of Jesus. He's not examining our life for sins and failures. If you read the Old Covenant, He always examined the sacrifice. It wasn't the measure of the sin, it was the perfection of the sacrifice. Was the sacrifice perfect, without spot? Was it blameless? Then you're atoned. It's the same for us. He's always looking at Jesus, our perfect Lamb. So there's nothing that you can do to mess this up because it's a gift. He's a good father. He doesn't remove a gift. He's not like, you messed it up. I'm taking that one back. No, it's yours forever, all of eternity. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're righteous. You're holy. You're blameless. And he loves you with the deepest passion uh, and kindness and mercy and grace that you could ever, ever imagine. 
This is the blessing of the gospel. So I want to say to you today, with great sensitivity to whatever you are facing right now in your personal lives, again, I want to say the Lord cares about that. But what I want to say over us as a family this morning is you are blessed. If you've given your life to Jesus, then you are blessed along with Abraham. And the blessing that you've received is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Can you feel that when we talk about this stuff, I don't know about you, I feel what David calls the joy of our salvation. Can you feel that? It's like, it's good news. And sometimes the expression of, the, of receiving that looks very tender because there's conviction and it's like, God, like I've been holding back, but I want to give you everything. But other times it's like, it's the greatest joy of our lives to surrender to Jesus. It's the greatest joy of our lives to lay down our own attempt at self-righteousness, our own dreams, our own visions, plans, and, and ideas that we have for our lives, and to take up His righteousness, to take up His dream, and to realize that the gospel will, guaranteed, no way around it, will transform every single aspect of our lives. Somebody needs to hear this today. There is no part of your life that the Lord doesn't want the gospel to touch. Every single aspect of your life, every, anything that you can think of, the Lord desires for the gospel to touch that very thing and to transform it. That's a joy. He's made a way for us to be like Him. He's made a way for us to experience and encounter His presence. It says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking and talking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's not just nice language. Those are tangible realities for the sons and daughters of God. The righteousness of God is wild and fiery, and let me tell you, it's yours. The peace of God, Paul says, surpasses all understanding, which means regardless of the storms that you're facing, the peace of God is yours in the Holy Spirit. He says it's joy. The joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. This is tangible stuff. It's not just things that you need to quote to try and make yourself feel better. These are tangible, real realities for the sons and daughters of God. And I want to encourage us this morning that if at any point in your walk with Jesus, you have doubted whether you're supposed to feel something, and maybe you just need to keep your head down and well... I don't know if there's anything special about this Christian life. I want to say to you today that great glory awaits those who would yield before the Father. Great glory awaits those who would say, Lord, I believe your word. I believe what you said, and I receive it and grab hold of it by faith today. That your righteousness is mine. That your peace is mine. That your joy is mine. And that in Jesus' name, you are restoring the joy of salvation to the church. It's good news. So Lord, we bless you today. Father, I thank you for the joy of our salvation. Lord, we thank you for the treasure of the gospel. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you have so richly poured out upon us, Lord. 
I pray, Father, for fresh revelation in our hearts, Lord, that not one single person would leave here today having doubting, uh, doubting anything about your word, doubting anything about the gospel. But in Jesus' name, Lord, I ask right now for a sealing of the gospel, a sealing of the word of God in every heart and in every mind in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you that every lie of the enemy, every burden of the law and our attempt at self-righteousness would be stripped away right now and that the freedom that comes only through the pure gospel of Jesus would be ministered afresh in Jesus' name. Right now, in your own words, I'd ask, just receive the joy of the Lord that is yours in Christ Jesus. If you need peace, if your, if your mind has been tormented by just the, the difficulties and the pace of life, receive the peace of Christ right now that will guard your heart. It will guard your heart, and it surpasses all understanding. Know today that even if your situation would not change, believe that the Lord will change your heart today. And grab hold of the joy of the Lord and be strengthened by it today. Lord, have your glory in these people. Have your glory in our lives, Father. Thank you that when you look at us, it's just as if we've never sinned. Thank you that what you are declaring over us is that we are your sons and your daughters, that we are righteous, that we are holy and we are blameless, not because of anything that we've done, but simply because of who you are, what you've said and what you've done. We praise you for the gospel this morning, Lord, and we give you permission as a church family today, Lord, to come and conquer our hearts with the gospel. We give you permission, Lord, to touch every part of our lives with the gospel of grace. Come and make us more and more like Jesus, we pray. Come and have your reward in us, Jesus. Have your reward. We love you and we bless you. And we thank you, Lord. Above everything else, we thank you for the joy of being yours. The joy of being your church the joy of knowing you, the joy of loving you, the joy of living every moment of every day in you and through you. God, I thank you that this week would be marked by fresh revelation of the gospel. For every person here and everyone that couldn't come today, Lord, I thank you for profound revelation of the gospel to hit our hearts. Lord, wherever our hearts have grown cold, I thank you that the fire of the gospel is more than enough to set us ablaze for your kingdom. Thank you for just a week marked with encounters with you, Lord. Encounters with your love, encounters with your, your peace and the joy of our salvation. We bless you and we give you glory. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Thank you, family. If you need prayer,